It's quite, I think, one of the things that's often uh, funny when you look at our world as it is right now is just how instant everything is. We live truly in an age of having everything at our fingertips. We brew instant coffee. We cook instant rice. We pick up instant food. We turn on our TVs for instant entertainment. And we are sold diet plans that promise instant results. And pretty much everything nowadays has a one-minute plan to make this thing. We don't want to spend time doing things that perhaps our, our grandparents or great-grandparents did. Instead, we want things now, in the immediate And it reminds me of this observation that a stand-up comedian once made. (laughs) I won't try and repeat his joke because I'm not a comedian, but it was interesting how he was just pointing out the fact how funny it is that if you look at a box of Pop-Tarts, that it has instructions to microwave the Pop-Tart. Which is just funny because it takes about a minute to put a Pop-Tart in the toaster, and yet if you want to be even faster than that, you can put your Pop-Tarts in the microwave for about five seconds. (laughs) This comedian, he says in one, uh, one of his lines, and he says, if you need to zap fry your Pop-Tarts before you head out the door, you might want to loosen up your schedule. <laughs> and I think that's kind of true. If that's what it takes for you to get out the door, you are living in a two-instant society. Which just say, I don't think we like waiting for things. I know that, and I'm speaking from experience. I don't have a good track record when it comes to waiting. But I don't think any of us like to wait. We wait in waiting rooms at doctor's offices. We wait in traffic all the time when we're driving. We wait on cookies to come out of the oven. And those things can be quite frustrating, can they not? Waiting for things that we want. Maybe it's not the doctor's office, but perhaps others. And even though we know, as good old honest Abe has told us, good things come to those who wait, we honestly, I think, sometimes don't believe him. We don't believe that good things come to those who wait. I think we often believe that good things come to those who make it happen in an instant. And yet, one of the themes that I think if you just step back from Scripture and you ponder it over and over again throughout God's Word, He brings His people into situations and circumstances in which they are forced to wait on Him. They're forced to wait on His timing. Go with me to a couple passages and notice how often this pops up. Go with me to Psalm 25, the 25th Psalm. There's several instances of this that appear throughout the Psalms of David particularly. Notice what he says, Psalm 25, look at verse 3. He says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Notice verse 21 of the same psalm. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Flip over page, Psalm 27, and look at verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Go with me to Psalm 37, a couple pages forward. Psalm 37, and look at verse 9. He again says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Psalm 40, just a 
a couple pages forward. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry, and so it goes. David, of course, has a life in which he was forced on multiple occasions to wait for God's timing, to wait for God's sovereignty to intervene, for, to wait for God to act. And you can see how often David is praying this prayer, God, I'm waiting for you. I also always get this sense that David is reminding himself that he can wait and he ought to wait on this Lord to whom he owes everything. I think we ought to say the same things. We can pray the same prayers that David prayed. But I think, despite all that, I think there's, no, there's an even better character that teaches us the lesson of, perhaps we could call it, hurry up and wait. And that character is Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 12, that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time tonight. Father Abraham, though, as he is often called is one of the most crucial characters in all of Scripture. He is a very important character to know and to discuss and to be familiar with. Indeed, he is one of the most vital people, most vital figures in all of Scripture. And just by way of proving that, you don't have to go to all these passages, but it's really telling that whenever a New Testament writer is intending to prove something about the gospel, they invariably, almost without fail, begin with Abraham. Peter does it in Acts chapter 3. James does it in James chapter 2. The anonymous writer to the Hebrews does it in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 7 and in Hebrews 11. Of course, Paul does it multiple times in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians all over the place. And even Jesus in John chapter 8, he calls the Pharisees to be reminded of the fact that they are the sons of Abraham. And then he has that amazing statement, I am the God of Abraham. Which is just to say that clearly there's a story here revolving around the story of Abraham that is crucial, I think, to our understanding of Scripture. But I think also it's crucial to our understanding of how God deals with the world and with us. Clearly, I think one of the things that comes to the surface if you read Abraham's story is that God would always have his people be dependent upon him. And that's sort of what it means to wait, doesn't it? When we're waiting, we are dependent upon someone else. We are dependent upon, we are at their mercy, so to speak. We, when we're sitting in that waiting room at the doctor's office, we are at their mercy to call us back. (laughs) And it seems like it takes two to three hours, perhaps, for him to do that. And then when you even get to the room, it takes even longer than that, perhaps, sometimes. (laughs) But dependency is part of waiting. And what is one thing that we, especially as Americans, don't like to admit? That we are dependent. That we are creatures who are wholly dependent upon something else. Or we could perhaps even be more accurate. We are creatures who are dependent upon someone else. And that gets under our skin. We don't like waiting because it means that means we are not sovereign over our lives. We are not in control. We are not the masters of our own fate. I think Abraham shows us that over and over again. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 12 of Genesis. This indeed is the call of Abram. 
I, I, I'm probably going to slip up a couple of times, I'll just admit, and call him Abraham. And I know that he changes his name later, but it's just the first thing on my lips. So if you, you'll forgive me if I do that. Um, but verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This, of course, is the call of Abraham in which he is given this command uh, from God to go. And he doesn't tell him where. Notice again, he just says, go from your country to the land that I will show you. It's an ambiguous sort of call of God that he says, just pack up your belongings and follow me. And the remarkable part is the fact that Abraham does it. He obeys. But within this command, there's this incredible promise that God gives to Abraham. And a promise which will be repeated often throughout Abraham's life. It's a promise that has three parts to it. Notice He gives them this promise of land as he says, go and I will give to you the land that I will show you. This, of course, is part of this covenant that God is making with Abraham. He's going to bring him to a place and make him dwell in a settled place. This is the incredible part of the promise that God gives to Abraham is that he will root him. He will settle him in a place that he can call home, a place that he and his offspring can call their own. It's a promise of land. It's also a promise of people. As he says, I will make of you a great nation. All of the offspring of Abraham would multiply and multiply and multiply. And nations would form out of his line and whole civilizations. And they would become so great that they could only be calculated by unfathomable measures. Notice chapter 13 and notice verse 16. Notice how God, again, is telling him about this promise of people that is going to come from his line. Notice he says, I will make your offspring, notice, as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Go with me to chapter 15 and look at verse 5. Another promise of people repeated to Abraham. And notice how God frames it. And in... Chapter 15, verse 5. And he brought him, that is Abram, outside that said, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Notice, flip all the way over to chapter 22. Once again, this promise is repeated into the ears of Father Abraham. And notice what he says. Genesis 22, look at verse 17. It says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Over again and over again, we have this promise repeated of people coming from Abraham's lineage, a people that will be unfathomable. As much as the dust particles that you can gather in the corner of your home, as much as the stars that you can see in the night sky, and as much as the sand that you pick up with your hand on the seashore, that's how great your people are. 
It's a promise of land. It's a promise of people. It's a promise of blessing, which is the great sort of imports of this great covenant that God gives to Abraham. As he says at the end, I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, notice, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham's bloodline would be a conduit, if you can say that, a channel through which God's blessings would come upon the world. It was to be universal blessing that would spill over all the earth. And indeed, we can just step back and say, God had really big plans for Abraham and his family. Really big plans. And these promises, I think, are meant to make Abraham just stop and wonder. And just say, wow, this is what you're going to do through me. And yet, as God repeats all of these things and repeats them several times, I think one of the real stunners about all of this is the fact that none of these things were true in Abraham's day. As God's repeating these things that he's going to make true, Abraham had no evidence of any of them. He had no home. He was somewhat of a nomad. He was taken from his own kindred and family place. And now he was uh, following God as sort of a spiritual nomad, so to speak. He had no offspring. All of these blessings that God said were going to come about, you can trust me, all of them were veiled in this veil of uncertainty. Notice verse 6 of chapter 12. Because again, remember, God promises, I'm going to give you this land. And notice, just catch, catch the irony here. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Notice, he's promising him land that's already occupied. It's not like he's going out into a wide open country and saying, this is the land that I'm going to make you settle down in. No, he's taking him to a place that's already occupied by a people, that's occupied by a pagan people at that, no less. And he says, I promise you, I'm going to give you this land. Just not yet. You got to wait. I'm going to give it to your offspring. I'm not going to give it to you, Abraham, specifically. I'm going to give it to those who come after you. And years go by. Years go by. And still no indication that any of these promises have made any sort of progress. There's no sort of sign that they're coming true. And in fact, did you go with me to chapter 15 again? Because here God appears to Abraham again. And notice Abraham is really quick to point out there's a big piece of the puzzle missing, God. Notice chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give for me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Nothing to go on. 
And in fact, the very crux of the promise that Abraham has given back in chapter 12 is that he's going to be, uh, from him is going to spring a great nation and many nations will be blessed through his line and yet he's childless, he has no heir. Which surely must have made it hard, if not well impossible, to believe that any of these promises were coming true or might come true. And in fact, none of the promises that God made to Abraham would be fulfilled in his lifetime. He never saw them. He never saw his descendants settle down. He never saw the multitude of nations and the kings and the kingdoms come from his line. All in all, Abraham has given this amazing promise and then he's told to step back and wait. Wait on me. The Lord seems to say, and I will bring these things to pass. Wait on me to make good on my word. Which I just have to imagine must have been a frustrating place for Abraham to be put in. Waiting on God to fulfill these things and yet not to make good on them in his lifetime. And yet, as it says, and he believed the Lord. And yet, if you want to even make that even, perhaps even more unimaginable, notice verse 13 of chapter 15. Because much to Abraham's surprise, I think, even Abraham's children would be forced to wait too. If you want to get a glimpse at how waiting is so significant and so crucial to how God puts us into a place of dependency, notice verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. So he gives Abraham this promise that your offspring will be in the land that I show them, but before that, they're going to have to wait four centuries. As they sojourn as slaves in a land that is not their own. Of course, this is referring to the time in which they were enslaved under Egyptian bondage. The occupation of that land that Abraham was promised wouldn't come for centuries after this initial promise. Go with me to Exodus chapter 1. And notice, notice the people of Israel. They are now very much indeed in this very spot. They're slaves in the house of Egypt. They are sojourning there and suffering under much sorrow. Notice how it, what it says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 13. It says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What do you think the people of Israel thought in that particular moment about these Abrahamic promises? You know, by this time, the promises made to Abraham were very much a part of Israelite life and culture. If you read the rest of Genesis, that promise made to Abraham is repeated over and over and over again through all of Abraham's descendants. The descendants of Jacob and so on and so forth. 
It becomes a part of their religious life, a part of even, we could say, their culture. That they believed in these covenants that were made to Abraham of people and blessing and land. And they were going to come about according to God's timing. And yet, here they are. They're in a place of sorrow, in a place of slavery, in a place of difficulty. I can just think, being an Israelite in those days surely must have been Almost impossible to believe that God's words were true. (laughs) Is God really going to do this? This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel like God's blessing. And even in that, the people of Israel were made to wait on the promises of God. And their waiting was accompanied by all of this ruthless ruthlessness and desperation. And yes, even great difficulty. And it makes them suffer and it makes them cry out for someone to help them. And actually, that's part of the great promise that is given to Abraham initially. Go back to Genesis 15. I know we're flipping around, but just notice how God continues this promise made to Abraham. He tells him in verse 13 that your offspring will be afflicted and they will suffer as servants and slaves for 400 years. But notice what it says in verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Notice what he is telling them. I'm going to make it so that they, uh, the people who enslave your offspring will be judged and you will return to the land, the land that I have promised you. All of these things will come about. You just have to wait on me. You just have to wait on my timing. And this is who God is. He tells them, he tells Abraham, indeed, very much right here, you have to take my word for this, basically. And that's who God is. He is a God of his word, a God who always delivers on his promises. Go with me to one other place. Go with me to Acts chapter 7. You gotta see, I love how Stephen uses Abraham in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Because he basically gives a commentary, if you will, on a lot of Old Testament truth and history. And as Stephen is preaching, I love how he frames the story of Abraham. Because notice, again, to repeat all of these promises that are given to Abraham, what did Abraham have to go on? Pretty much nothing except for God's word. Notice Stephen even says this. Acts chapter 7 verse 5. Yet he, that is God, gave Abraham no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Though he had no child, he had nothing to go on to believe in these promises except for God's word. And yet it is precisely that word, as it says again in Genesis 15, that he believed and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And if you go through all the succeeding generations, generation after generation, throughout all the history of Israel, throughout all the history of all those kings and kingdoms and nations and prophets and judges, that promise kept carrying on. 
Till, go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, in Mary's song, notice what she says. Thousands of years later, after that initial promise to Abraham, notice Mary singing this song, Luke 1.54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, this is what God is doing. He's giving them a promise and all of the faithful of God have clung to that promise throughout all the generations. They have been dependent, faithful ones on the Lord Jesus himself. As they've waited on him to fulfill his word. And such is how it's always been. This is the way of Israel, you could say. The way of Israel has always been the way of taking God at his word. Trusting in that bare word of promise. Even when all the circumstances say something different. You're trusting in that word of promise. (coughs) Above everything else. And indeed I would say that's the way of the church too. Even when there is little, next to nothing, to make us believe in the promises of God, that's what it means to have faith. Hebrews 11.6, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's Abraham. The assurance of things hoped for came about solely because God told him these things were to be true. Which is just to say that the church, in much the same way as Abraham, is to have faith. And to have faith is to wait on the timing of God. You know, I've said oftentimes, many times, that I love the works of J.R.R. Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings. And he has that quip that he gives to one of his characters. And he says that a wizard is never late. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Which was Tolkien's funny way of giving one of his characters a a funny introduction. But I step back and I think that that's exactly what it means to have faith in God. Is to wait on his timing. And know that he's not late and that he's neither early. God always arrives precisely when he means to. When he acts and intervenes in our world, when he steps into our time, it's precisely on time. Waiting on God for Abraham meant decades of waiting on the arrival of God's promised son. And yet, what does God show him? That he always does what he says he's going to do. In Genesis 21, you can turn there if you want, but I'll just read the passage. Genesis 21 It's the birth of Isaac. The Lord visited Sarah, it says. As he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called on the name, called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 
25 years later. 25 years after that initial promise that you will have great nations, have great things come on you, and blessings come upon you. 25 years later, Abraham finally sees the first glimpse that that promise would be made true. And here we're made to see that God always delivers on his promises. To Abraham, this was true in his son Isaac. In Exodus chapter 2, there's a great little passage to follow up on that little scene with the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel are enslaved. They are in a position where they don't see anything as telling them that God's promises of deliverance are true. Exodus 2, 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What a promise. The cries of these Israelites who were in a position of sorrow and suffering and slavery in which they were made to doubt that whether these promises that they had heard from their great-great-grandfather about what God was going to do for them, if, now they're wondering if those were even true, and yet they're crying out to God, and God hears their cries, and he knew what they were going through. He knew their cries before they even went forth from their lips. Which is just to say, he knows what you're going through as well. He knows how weary your waiting is. He knows how frustrating it is to endure these seasons of longing where it seems so frustrating to keep waiting on his timing, to keep waiting on all of these things to come true and come to pass. And yet this is always been his promise that those who are dependent upon the Lord shall never be left shall never be forsaken shall never be lost shall never be forgotten we could read those verses but it repeats it all throughout scripture Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 you can write this verse down no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses so I will be with you I will not leave you or forsake you and the same promise is repeated in Hebrews and in Psalms and in 2 Corinthians over and over again we have this assurance that God sees and knows he knows how, how hard it is to wait how hard it is to be dependent he says, take me on my word. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Regardless of how hard life hits us, how frustrating his plans appear to be, God is always at work to bring about his purposes, which is an amazing thought to think through. We're often confused about his timing. And about the nature of God's promises. Like Abraham, it doesn't seem like it's true. 
There's no evidence to say that it's coming true. And yet God is never confused. He is never lost. He was always right on time. He arrives precisely when he means to. He and is still in charge. And his plans for us and for the world are still very much alive and well. And proceeding exactly as he has ordained from before the foundations of the world. Even now we can wait We can wait in the blessed confidence that the Lord's triumphant return is coming. And we can wait with that hopeful expectation that he's right on time. We can wait in the blessed dependence of following upon God. Following hard after him. There's some great verses that go along with this in Romans chapter 5. It has that great phrase in Romans 5, 6 that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God has always been right on time. With with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Mary, with Christ himself. And all throughout history, he has been right on time, delivering on every single one of his promises. So while we might want different timing, he gives us his timing. And we can wait on him. Because he's an eternally trustworthy God. There's no better place than the place to be dependent upon him. We might want to have our lives figured out. And have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed. And have everything in order. And yet God says, wait on me. May we find ourselves in that place of waiting. And may we be okay and faithful. In the waiting room of God's promises. Let us pray.